We're going to read verses 5 through 15, primarily focusing on 9 through 15, but Matthew 6, 5 through 15. Now, real quick, before we get going, just wanted to say last week, if you're here for Easter uh, or watched online, you probably noticed the lovely flowers we have down here at the foot of the pulpit. And so those were provided by Rob and Candy Roth, and so we're really happy and thankful for that. So thank you guys for those flowers. They, uh, they beauty up the joint, because looking at me is not all that beautiful, so... Appreciate that very much. All right. So this week as I was getting ready, I had, so I planned my, my, my sort of preaching calendar out pretty far in advance so that I know where I'm going. And because I preach primarily expositional sermons through books of the Bible, that's pretty easy to do, right? I can do that. And that leaves room that if, you know, if God, as he often, uh, maybe not often, but will do on occasion, change during the week and change something that I decide I need to talk about something else because I feel like the Lord's really working in a certain area in the congregation or something. Most of the time when that happens, where I feel like, man, there's this thing going on in the congregation, the passage that week that God has already led me in preparing for uh, in whatever book we're already in deals with it. And so uh, that's just how he has shown himself just sovereign over uh, even my preaching and everything. But this week, my original plan, so we'd been going through the Sermon on the Mount, we were going to continue, but then I decided, well, we're going to have to break for Easter, and so that week after, I'm going to do like, 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 like this sort of, um, I, I hate the word vision, because it gets wonky when churches start talking about their vision and vision casting and all this stuff, and it gets real businessy and gross. Okay, uh, but it was I had it on my calendar written as Vision Sunday because I just wanted to talk about the future and where kind of where I see us going as a church and things like that. Um, and during the week, all week, as I sat down and tried to get that ready, um, I I know where we need to go. I know what we need to do. It's hard to explain. Like I already know that I could articulate it and talk about it. And I got I sat, would sit down to try and write out my notes for the sermon. And it, it was not working, guys. It was not working. And, um, and I believe that that is because the Lord wanted me to put that off uh, a little while longer and talk about this passage today. Uh, I don't know why that is, because I feel weaker about my preparation this week than I have in a while. <laughs> and, and, and so that must mean that God wants to do something and prove that it's him and not me, <laughs> uh, to me, maybe not to you, but to me. And so, uh, anyway, so I'm excited to see what the Lord does in our hearts with this passage this morning. Uh, if you remember, we were going through the Sermon on the Mount. We're jumping right back in. And uh, the last passage we had covered was a larger passage. And in that larger passage was the Lord's Prayer, uh, the passage we refer to as the Lord's Prayer. And I said, we're going to come back after Easter and kind of zoom in on the prayer itself, the model prayer. And that's what we're going to do this morning. But uh, guys, I can't do this without God's help. So let's pray. Ask him to help me and help us to listen and obey. Father God, as we come before you, I thank you for the good gift that we have of your word. I thank you that uh, you called me to preach your word and that you show yourself in my life uh, uh, when I'm unsettled about something. You show me your leadership through it and your plan in it, God. And um, God, I know that it's not necessarily about having the end uh, in mind. It's about taking that next step of obedience. And Father, I pray you'd help us uh, each individually in our lives and as a church to take the next step of obedience. Um, God, just, just change our hearts with your word. Your word is truth. 
And uh, there's nothing else that we could say uh, that would have any, <laughs> nothing else that could be added that, that, that would have any more effect. Your word is effective and it is sufficient. And I pray you would use it to break our hearts uh, for our sin, to heal them with your love. And uh, just thank you for uh, this calling. Thank you for um, just the way you work in our hearts, the way you show yourself sovereign over uh, even, even our uh, human plans. And um, God, help us. Help us understand. Help us not just take it to heart, but help uh, the application of this message change our lives, Jesus. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. Uh, beginning in Matthew chapter 6, verses 15 through, or excuse me, 5 through 15. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you that they, are, that they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray one more time. Father, God, as we come and we dive into what your word says here, the model of how we should pray, uh, I, I just ask God that you would increase and that I would decrease. That you would be big and show us yourself in your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Today, as I said before, we're jumping right back into our series and, and it's a Sermon on the Mount and we're calling it Greatest Sermon Ever. And as we jump back in, we come to yet another passage today that is probably to most of us, if you've been in church at all, it's pretty familiar to some. Uh, many people in general who aren't a part of church know the Lord's Prayer. Uh, my hope is that today we can see this with fresh eyes and understand what Jesus is actually trying to teach here in the Word of God. Now, I'm not dumb enough to think that I will be able to say everything about prayer today in these few minutes. And some of you are like, few minutes? I've heard you preach before. Uh, but <laughs> there's no few about it. But anyway, uh, I, I'm not going to be able to say everything there is to say about prayer. So what we're going to do is we're going to try and look at the Lord's Prayer with fresh eyes because I think this is true. If we're not careful, uh, then the Lord's Prayer, this passage, can be so familiar that we recite it out of rote repetition. It, it just becomes rote in our minds, and we don't even think about it. It's just something we say or do sometimes. However, this was never the teaching of Jesus in the prayer. This was not what he was teaching in the prayer. This wasn't what it was supposed to be about. You know, for example, in high school, I played football. Not the whole time, but I played football. 
And we'd go out, and before our games, uh, what would happen? Before the varsity game, we'd get in the locker room, and we'd kneel down, and the, 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 coaches, and the coaches and the players, we'd all recite together the Lord's Prayer. Now, some of these guys were pagans. I'm just going to be straight up with you. They weren't Christians, and yet here they are reciting the Lord's Prayer as if they're tossing it up and hoping something good happens during the game because they recited the Lord's Prayer before it. That is not the point of this passage. That is not the point of the Lord's Prayer. And I would say, I don't think that's how the Lord's Prayer uh, is to be used. This passage is situated in the text in a way that Jesus is teaching his followers to pray rightly in God's way, as opposed to the hypocritical way of the scribes and Pharisees that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. That, and that he just describes right before he gets to the section we call the Lord's Prayer, in, in part of that first section I read. So he teaches his followers to pray humbly and worshipfully and not in the way of the pagans. Sinclair Ferguson says that this prayer serves two purposes. First, it provides a model prayer, an easily memorized outline that serves as a lesson in how to approach God as Father and how we are to speak with him. And secondly, he says, it serves as an outline of the whole Christian life by providing certain fixed points of concerns for the family of God. It underlines life's priorities and helps us to get them in focus. And I love that. I love those two purposes that he lays out here. And it is because of this that some people refer to this as the disciple's model prayer or the model prayer of a disciple. And you'll hear me refer to it in that way also as the Lord's Prayer just because that's a common uh, term. But you could also, I mean, theoretically, if you really want to get deep into it, you could go John 17 and that could be called the Lord's Prayer because that's Jesus' high priestly prayer is what we typically refer to that. So, But anyway, this is the disciple's model prayer or the model prayer of a disciple or the Lord's Prayer, or the Lord's Model Prayer. As many do, we're actually going to look at the natural divisions of the prayer in two main sections, and each of these two main sections have uh, three requests or three petitions in them, so there's six total in these two sections. And the first three deal with requests that are focused on God and Him and, and who He is and His glory, and the second three are requests that focus more on on our needs. Um, and I like that, that they point that out, that, that like, first it's about God, right? First it's about God. And the first three, this first section is about God and his name and his glory. And then we get on to our needs. Now, a lot of times, I don't know about you, but when I pray, sometimes it's immediately, please do this, please do this, I need this, please do this, please do this. Oh, you're so great, you're so holy. Yeah. <laughs> and and I approach him, and we're going to get into that in just a minute. I don't want to steal my own thunder from my first point here, but we'll begin with the first section and learn that when you pray, you should start with your Heavenly Father. When you pray, you should start with your Heavenly Father. And uh, for reference, it's verses 9 through 11 that, that point to this. So what does it mean, though, to begin with your Heavenly Father? Now, I kind of alluded to it earlier. But when we come to prayer, what we are actually doing is we, those who are Christians, who have uh, trusted in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, who've been adopted in the family of God, are running to our Heavenly Father 
for it's only he who can help us and it's only he who truly matters. Because we understand that he's in control of everything, that he is sovereign, that all of everything in our life actually relies on him. What a privilege we have as followers of Christ being adopted into the family of God. We've been bought with a price and redeemed and added to God's very family. We must not take for granted this incredible privilege that we have to be able to run to the Father and worship Him, as well as, of course, tell Him our needs. But we should not take that for granted. And so often, the fact that we have access to God is something I think we take for granted because we just do and we know it. And I think sometimes we, we neglect that. And sometimes I think we neglect it by not going to Him enough. So Jesus teaches them to begin with three parts of prayer that focus on God the Father. Uh, J.I. Packer died recently. He was a, a very well-known, well-respected theologian, author. Um, I recommend his work. Uh, but he said this. He said, you sum up the whole of the New Testament teaching in a single phrase. If you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator... In the same way you sum up the whole of New Testament religion, if you describe it as knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, listen to this. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. So when Jesus gives us the model prayer, gives his followers, these are people who who follow him, gives them the model way to pray, he starts with God as heavenly father. It's running to the Lord, acknowledging him as your father, that you've been adopted into the family of God. And so when we start with God the father, what is the first thing that this model prayer talks about verse 9, right? And that is pray for the Lord's name to be honored. Hallowed be your name. That his name is holy. This is, this is a statement of valuing God above all, valuing God above all, and that his name is holy, pure, undefiled, set apart. The purpose of prayer, the purpose of prayer is not that you be honored and lifted up. Prayer is not about you. Now that may sound harsh, because there are a lot of guys that you can find on TV and the internet who will tell you that it is about you, or at least speak in such a way that might make you think it is about you. Prayer is not about you being honored and lifted up. That's not the purpose of it. That's not the purpose of it. Do you grow from it? Yes. Do you benefit from it? Yes. Okay. I agree with you there. But we want to honor and lift up the name of God in prayer. His character, his unique, pure, undefiled, righteous, transcendent, supreme, his most excellent, amazing, complete treasure in the whole universe is him. And everything else pales in comparison to him. And when we come to him, we're saying, holy be your name, hallowed, 
You are the greatest treasure in the world. You're the greatest treasure in the universe, beyond the universe. This, praying for the Lord's name to be honored, is to be radically God-centered. To be radically God-centered and centered and pointed and focused towards God's holiness, towards God's being lifted up, towards God's glory, God's being glorified, being radically God-centered. Jesus was and is radically God-centered. We're to be like Jesus. So he gives us a model way to pray. Hallowed be your name. Number two, to pray for the Lord's kingdom to come, verse 10. This request comes with the beat of of a missionary heart, or a mission-minded heart, for the mission of God. Praying for the Lord's kingdom to come. You're to pray with a healthy balance of thinking of the end. So uh, we talk, when we talk about the study of end times, I've used a big word before, and I've explained it, eschatology. So when we talk about eschatology, we talk about end times. So uh, we're to pray thinking, yes, a healthy balance of, yes, the end times, the eschatology, when Christ will come and will return and will reign forever. His kingdom will be established forever. And the, so balance that, but also a balance with the desire for more people to come and know Jesus before that happens. You want his kingdom to come with people coming to know him and, and repenting of their sins and his kingdom being increased here and now, that already but not yet kingdom. But you also want his kingdom to come in eternity as well, that, the not yet portion of the already but not yet kingdom. The world is at war, even though they don't realize it. There's a cosmic battle going on. And one of the greatest weapons we have in this battle is prayer. We're not fighting for our own kingdom or our own way, but for God's name to be honored, not ours. It's praying that every sphere of our lives will start to look like it will look in the new creation. It's praying that, that, God, your kingdom come on earth as it, like, or excuse me, your will be done. Your kingdom come, your kingdom come here, now, in my heart, and in eternity, when you return and reign, Jesus, and conquer death. He's already conquered death. It's praying with a mind towards God's rule and reign being established in the hearts of people now and in eternity. That every sphere of our lives will start to look like it will look in the new creation. Do you remember the Beatitudes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount? We said those are little glimpses, like those are true of people who follow Jesus and they're little glimpses of what it will be like in, in the kingdom and eternity. And <laughs> we're to pray that more and more of that will be apparent and will be present now as well as in the new creation. It's asking God to roll out the troops around the world and bring more people into the kingdom because we're in a battle. We're in, we're in a cosmic battle. And 
our side, it's not really our side, just spoiler alert, it's God's side, uh, wins. Wins. And it's for us praying for his kingdom to come, for that victory to be established in the hearts of, hearts of men. Third, to pray for the Lord's will to be done. To pray for the Lord's will to be done. Jesus has often has been said of him that he is the best commentary on his own teachings. His life, of course, is exemplary of a child of God because he was God in the flesh and lived a perfect life and never sinned. And so when we look at Jesus, there's a reason the Bible tells us that those who follow Jesus must live as he did, right? Because he is not just, not just to be our model, he is our, our king, our Lord, but we are to live as he did. And he is the best commentary on the things he teaches. His life provides as a commentary, as an application of the things he taught. And this includes the way he prayed and conducted himself in relation to the will of God. Matthew twenty six thirty nine. just before Jesus is going to be arrested and crucified. He knows what's coming. And in Matthew twenty six thirty nine. It says, and going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. We find that Jesus, though he, he knew what was coming, he wasn't shirking responsibility. He wasn't doing anything in any way sinful at that point. What he was acknowledging is, if there's another way, let's do it another way. But no matter that, what you will, Father, not what I will be done. And if you skip ahead to verse 44, you find that this wasn't the last time he prayed that. In verse 44 of Matthew 26, it says, So leaving them again... He went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. This kind of prayer, the kind of prayer that says, I don't like what's going on, or I'd rather not go through whatever it is that the Lord is leading you through right now, whatever suffering, whatever hardship, whatever trial, It's an antidote, this prayer, to sin in the heart. See, we've, we've been continually saying in this series of messages that the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart because sin begins in the heart. And it will only be killed in you when your heart desires God's will more than your heart desires your will. And it's only by the grace of God that this can happen in your heart. Only the grace of God in Jesus Christ can produce this in your heart. You can't muster it up on your own. Only the person who has been redeemed from the kingdom of death can truly pray with all sincerity for God's kingdom to come and God's will to be done over their own. Because it is submission to God's kingdom over your own selfish kingdom. And honestly, guys, uh, too many times we'd much rather build our own kingdoms that maybe we think look like the way God's kingdom should look if we were in charge. We would never say that out loud. 
but we would live it out loud like that a lot of times. And we have to be careful. We have to bring our will in submission under the authority of the Lord God. Submission, submit, that's a word. That's a word that a lot of us, it's a word that a lot of us don't like. When I do weddings and I talk about wives submit to your husbands, uh, you can see the people squirming in the pews or the chairs. Well, not the men usually. They're smiling and giving a little elbow. But you could see people laughing and, and, and the ladies kind of looking at each other, right? Because we don't truly understand what submission is. And I'm not going to go into the whole thing right now in that context But in the context of this, it is placing my will subservient to, in submission to the will of God. And it's doing that not because I just have to, but because I trust that his will is better than my will. And so our issue with non-submission in, I think, any context really, is that we don't actually trust that that other person has our best interest at heart. We don't actually trust that their will is better than my will. And I think if we really boiled right down to it, unfortunately, there are times where if we were to drill all the way down into our heart on a, on a subject, that sometimes, at least we're living out our life, like we don't trust that God's will is better than my will. And that is a dangerous place to live. That's a dangerous place to live. So the second main division, the first one is praying to our Heavenly Father, going, starting with our Heavenly Father. The second major division is where um, when we hit verse 11, this, this model prayer of a disciple sort of shifts focus a little bit from our Heavenly Father uh, first to then our needs. As we hit verse 11. In this division, we're calling, when you pray, share your concerns with your Heavenly Father. So you've started with your Heavenly Father. You've come to Him as Father, as a submitted child of the King. And now you're coming and bringing Him your needs. Warren Wiersbe, some of you probably know of him, wrote that Satan wants to convince us that prayer is a waste of time. But the word of God and our own Christian experience assure us that prayer is a key to God's treasury of grace. Isn't that beautiful? God's treasury of grace. And make no mistake about it, the enemy, Satan, wants you to believe that it's a waste of time for you to talk to God. Remember, we're at war. We're at war. Even if it seems calm... We're at war. So first, as we go to him with our needs, what do we ask? Well, verse 11, right, where it turns to this. Ask for your daily needs to be met. Ask for your daily needs to be met. The prayer for daily bread would and should, to, to the Hebrews, bring to mind when in Exodus chapter 16, God provided manna for heaven for the Hebrews that were in Exodus from Egypt. And if, if you'll recall, if you don't know that story, again, Exodus 16, read that. 
um, so that you have a context for what I'm saying. Read that, that this afternoon. Um, but God, they didn't have anything to eat. They were out in the wilderness, and God provided manna from heaven. It would fall from heaven. It was flakes, like uh, kind of like coriander seed kind of looking things, I guess. I, there's a whole description of it there, okay? I'm not going to draw a picture. Because uh, <laughs> you don't want that. It would just look like a blob. Uh, but anyway, it would remind us that he had that fall from heaven. They were to collect only what they needed for that day. And then take it in, eat it. It sustained them for that day. And then the next day, they go out, and guess what? He provided once again, day by day. He didn't give them what they needed for the next three weeks. Okay, it wasn't like an Aldi run, all right? At least, or maybe that's just us. <laughs> you walk out with a cart full, right? So it was a daily provision of what they needed day in and day out. You know, in America, we tend to take our daily needs being met for granted. But we should pray this prayer with humility, knowing that if the Lord does not supply everything we need to live, we will die. Understand that God is holding the entire universe together. I heard somebody say this once, that God is sustaining, holding the whole universe together and sustaining it and if he were to decide one day just to stop holding it all together, we'd be done. Like cells collapse on each other, just gone. See, it's praying like this is a recognition that, uh, that you're trusting him as you ask him to provide. Unfortunately, for us, talking about daily bread, we have a high availability of food around us, most of us, I will say. There's a high availability of food, and it sort of tricks us into thinking we're self-sufficient. And that's our Western culture, you know, the whole uh, Emerson, Walden Pond, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, kind of, especially Midwestern thing, we're a hardy bunch, right? We can take care of ourselves, right? And, and it Unfortunately, we look around and it can kind of trick us into thinking we are self-sufficient. But once again, in Scripture, in the Old Testament, the story of Job should remind us that we're dependent on God for all things. And it is God who holds everything together and sustains us and provides. D.A. Carson teaches that uh, this prayer for daily bread should not be empty rhetoric. It's not to be just something we say out of memory or some ritual. It's like we forget that God is the one who provides our needs. It's like we forget James 1.17 that says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He provides for our daily needs and our eternal needs. And we need to be trusting him to provide those things. Secondly, we ask God to forgive you as you forgive others. This prayer takes a little turn here. If you really start thinking about it, processing it, into a petition for God to forgive you as you forgive others. Now, if we were to skip a, a few verses ahead and look at 14 and 15, you see a commentary on this. It's understanding that some people might find this confusing, right? I mean, 
This is the prayer of a child of God, and the child of God is someone who's been forgiven of their sins. They've been justified before God and forgiven when they first repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus Christ, his finished work on the cross for salvation. That he died in their place for their sins, that he rose three days later. And Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, So how should we understand this part of this model prayer of a disciple? Well, uh, J.I. Packer, I mentioned him earlier, he's really helpful in this point. He says that the Lord's prayer is the family prayer in which God's adopted children address their father and through their daily failures do not overthrow their justification, meaning uh, you're a child of God and you're sinning on the reg during the day, and that doesn't overthrow your standing before God, your justification. Things will not be right between them and their father till they have said sorry and asked him to overlook their ways that have let him down. Paul Tripp would add this to this. He says, "When when I live this lifestyle, I find joy in telling Jesus day after day that I need what he did in his life, death, and resurrection. This lifestyle is about growing to acknowledge and in some way every day that, that in some way, every day, I give evidence to the fact that the cross was necessary. And this lifestyle of forgiveness makes my daily attitude one of heartfelt gratitude and joy. See, it's recognizing day in, day out that, that in my life, every day, I give evidence that the cross was necessary. That Jesus' sacrifice on my behalf was necessary or else I would be condemned to hell. I would be justly in the target and under the wrath of God. What an insurmountable debt we had owed. We were in rebellion against God, and our debt was wiped out by the work of Christ on the cross. Jesus washed all our sins away in the doctrine of justification. But in sanctification, he now washes our sins away daily, our our, our now sins We've been forgiven so much. There's no excuse for us to not forgive others who sin against us. We have no grounds for holding on to it. We can't live our lives trying to be like the the ungrateful servant in Matthew 18 who held a minor debt against someone even though so much of a huge debt had been forgiven him. And our forgiving others doesn't earn us God's forgiveness. Rather, it's a sign that we've been forgiven and that we understand that we still need God's forgiveness every day. Thomas Watson, one of my old dead guys, helps us with applying this quote. He says, we are not bound to trust an enemy, but we are bound to forgive him. We are not bound to trust an enemy, but we are bound to forgive him. Forgiveness of others should look like breathing for a Christian because it's the only way we have hope is because we've been forgiven. Because we are forgiven by Christ, forgiven by God in Christ on the cross. And the last petition that Jesus includes here is asking God to deliver you from the evil one. That's in verse 13. Asking God to deliver us from the evil one. Uh, there's a pastor named John Piper whose words about this are helpful. I actually heard him speak several years ago, and he said this um, when I heard him speak. 
Prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. Prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comfort in the den. Prayer is not to be this intercom system where we ring upstairs and say, bring me more Coke. Okay? It's not ordering a pizza. It's a wartime communication, a walkie-talkie from the front lines, from the church on the front lines, advancing against the powers of darkness, phoning in and saying, I need an airstrike now. I like war movies. And I think about the guys, you know, they're, they're, they're in the ditch and they're calling in the airstrike and, you know, the mortars are coming in around them and the guy next to him gets blown away and he's, you know, he's hurt and he's calling in the airstrike and then here come the jets and they drop all the payload. And Why don't we think of our spiritual lives like that when that's the reality of what's going on around us? And I could tell you, even this week, even this week, I pay attention to like Christian, I guess, subculture, the social media, I don't know, Christian Twitter, whatever. Um, It's where all it is is it's regular. It's just people of Christ talking about stuff. Um, And their guys getting picked off by mortar shells right and left apostatizing, guys, pastors, theologians coming out and saying, yeah, I actually don't believe in Jesus anymore. I'm actually not a Christian. Now, the question rises, raises, of course, if they ever were at that point. I understand that. But it's happening all the time. We're seeing all this stuff happen. And it's like, it hits me hard pretty much every time. And I get... <laughs> I can get really depressed about it, actually, some days, depending on who it is and if it's someone I was, you know, I followed or whatever. Um, But here's the thing. We see the carnage all around us, and yet we're still, hey, um, can I get pepperoni on that? Instead of, Lord, help us, your kingdom come, your will be done. Give us our daily needs. Help me forgive We're in a battle. We're on mission for the Lord. We must be committed to prayer and not just prayer for the sake of prayer. Now I lay me down to sleep. But prayer for our very lives, for the lives of those around us. Prayer is essential in the life of a Christian. It's a wartime prayer. It's not a nonchalant thing. I think I told you, in my life, I I wanted to really focus on prayer, and I actually want to focus even more now, Um, (laughs) but really focus on what I was praying so that I wasn't just repeating a bunch of, you know, babbling or whatever. And so I started writing my prayers out. I've just kind of been looking through them because I'm about to finish the one journal and move on to another one, and just writing them out. It's just a very practical thing you could do. You could even, if you wanted... In the front of your journal, you could write out this Lord's Prayer as an outline, and then as you pray, kind of pray through it as an outline and put the stuff you're praying for in there. Prayer is not just important, it is vital in the life of a Christian, and it is vital to the life of a church.
And I think this might be, I think this might be why the Lord wanted me to come to this passage today. We're in a battle as a church. We're in a battle for the glory of God and the gospel. And we're on the winning side. And so, I'm just crazy enough to think we ought to live like it and we ought to pray like it. You cannot overstate how important prayer is in the life of a Christian or the life of a church. We want to pray rightly with right motives. Remember, the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. So we want to have right motives when we pray. I want to encourage you, as your pastor, to call out to God. Make time for prayer. Don't let it be an afterthought. Call out to your Father for help, forgiveness for your needs, and ultimately, first and foremost, focus on Him. Pray for the mission. Pray for your church to fulfill its mission. I'm going I'm to ask Dana and Alonzo to come on back up, and, and Karen, the musicians. I'll just say the musicians to come up. And uh, I just realized I started naming names, and I should just say, whoever's, whoever's doing music today, come up. Because it could be different. And I want to end with this. In uh, Andrew Murray's classic book, Christ, excuse me, With Christ in the School of Prayer. And Andrew Murray, again, old dead guy, okay? I know there's a lot of quotes today. I just found a lot of really good stuff that said it better than I could say it. And I want to make sure you know it's not me coming up with this stuff. All right? So... So Andrew Murray, old dead guy, wrote a lot about prayer. That's what he's best known for, okay? You want to read some Andrew Murray? I got some books, all right? But he wrote this in, in, in With Christ in the School of Prayer. He wrote this, this prayer that I want to end our time with this morning as I challenge you to go deeper in praying and pray rightly before the Lord. And he wrote, he wrote this. Lord Jesus... Enroll my name among those who confess that they don't know how to pray as they should and who especially ask you for a course of teaching in prayer. Lord, teach me to be patient in your school so that you will have time to train me. I am ignorant of the wonderful privilege and power of prayer. Lead me to forget my thoughts of what I think I know and make me kneel before you in true teachableness and poverty of spirit. Fill me, Lord, with confidence that with you for my teacher, I will learn to pray. Blessed Lord, I know that you won't put that student to shame who trusts you. And with your grace, that student won't shame you either. Amen. As we come to this time of worship, of responding to the Lord in worship, I would just challenge you. What do you need to change in your life? to focus more on prayer. How do you need it? you need to get up earlier? Do you need to watch less TV? What is it that you could do to focus more on prayer? Maybe you need to start a prayer journal. Maybe you need to just write out a list of things to pray for every day. I don't know what it is for you. But what is it? And, and trust the Lord that when you pray, as Murray wrote, for him to be your teacher, that he will teach you and he will not disappoint you you stand and we're going to sing a song of response.